Welcome back to Season 2 of the Distilling Craft Podcast. You're listening to Episode 5, Amari Amaro. The Distilling Craft Podcast is brought to you in part by our great sponsors, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, providing the craft spirits industry worldwide with the best fermentation yeasts for more than 100 years. Contact our sales team to help make your choice on yeasts and products for distilling your next great spirit. For more information or to find a distributor, visit Fermentis.com. That is F-E-R-M-E-N-T-I-S.com. What's up, guys? This is Colleen Moore from Dalkita, your host for episode number five of our second season of the Distilling Craft Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and listening today. We are still road tripping through the southeastern United States, and today we are in beautiful St. Augustine, Florida, the Sunshine State, where ironically it's raining. What a better thing to do than write a podcast episode between lightning strikes. With that, it's time for our safety soapbox. Let me just get up here. You know, that doesn't look safe. Is there a guardrail? Maybe a spotter? So today we're going to do a countdown of OSHA's top 10 violations in 2019. So every year, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, otherwise known as OSHA, comes out with this list of their top 10 violations across all industries And these 10 categories account for nearly 27,000 citations. Now, I love top 10 lists in general. I find them nice, compact little nuggets to consume. Uh, But looking at a top 10 list of the same thing uh, year over year can show you trends. And in this case, it tells OSHA what items they may need to address and trainings or provide resources to so people better understand them and address them in their facilities. So in this case, it's all about keeping people safe. So what you should do is take this list and compare it to your own workplace. These are the things that OSHA finds at facilities in all kinds of industries all over the country. Would they find it in your facility? If the answer is yes to any particular item, you have identified something that you can proactively work on to help keep your coworkers and visitors safer in your facility. So without further ado, the number 10 most cited OSHA violation of 2019 is eye and face protection. That's going to be goggles that you wear so you don't get ethanol splashing in your eye or grain dust or something like that. Number nine is going to be machine guarding. So that's going to be any machine that has moving parts that could, you know, crush your fingers or capture your hand or pull in a piece of clothing and suck you into the machine. So that's what machine guarding is. The number eight most cited OSHA violation is actually insufficient training. And it's regarding something that we have higher up on our most cited list. So insufficient training regarding fall protection is number eight. Number seven is going to be powered industrial trucks. So those are going to be your forklifts. We'll probably dig into that later in another safety soapbox this year. Number six is one we've already covered is ladders. 
Number five is respiratory protection. That's a good one to dig into uh, for another safety soapbox. So I'll put that on my list for this year. Number four is one that scares me. Number four is lockout tagout. This one scares me and it affects workers that have uh, to service, repair, maintain equipment, especially if that equipment be can become energized while someone's working on it. And I can actually think of several activities that occur in a distillery where this could be a hazard. So we can cover this one in a future soapbox as well. So stay tuned for that one. Number three, scaffolding or work platforms. So if you have these in your distillery, it would look like your equipment is surrounded by an elevated platform to make getting at the equipment a little bit easier. This one's actually a good one. We can cover it in a future soapbox as well. The number two most cited OSHA violation of 2019 is actually hazard communication. And this one surprises me a little bit, but then it also doesn't. I think it's one of the easiest ones to comply with. So that's the part that surprises me. But then I also think it has kind of a poor name and it doesn't really describe what it is supposed to do very well. So it confuses people just with its name. Uh, but it is important and distilleries need to pay attention to and address signage, and labeling uh, in their facilities. And so what hazard communication is, is just a standardized way to identify chemicals that are produced or used in the workplace, uh, signage and labels. So OSHA's standard is actually in line with an international standard and that's been in place since 2013, uh, but it's surprising that it's the number two most cited OSHA violation. I guess this tells us that uh, since the rules have been in effect, Lots of businesses are struggling with how to implement it in the workplace, and we can definitely do a safety soapbox topic on that. It'll probably be several so that you can get lots of workable little nuggets to work on. And the number one most cited OSHA violation of 2019 is fall protection. So it's actually been the most cited violation for the past several years um, since our company is also in the construction industry. Uh, this would look like, think of like a residential roof, uh, people working on the roof. So it's edges that you could fall off of. Uh, the focus of OSHA activity has been unprotected edges at an elevated height. Construction would hear about this quite often, uh, but elevated falls account for about 40% of deaths in the construction industry. Um, fall protection guidelines specify guardrail systems, safety net systems, or for personal fall arrest systems when working at heights. So, of course, when you provide those systems, you have to train your staff how and when to use them. And that isn't happening as the insufficient training for fall protection was at number eight, as we heard before. So that is the top 10 things to address in your facilities. Send me a note if you noticed anything on this list that is in your facility that could be an issue. I would love to tell everyone on the podcast easy ways to address or fix anything on this list. Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the U.S. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L. 
K-I-T-A.com. Now let's get back to the show. And now let's jump right into our show on Amari, the plural of Amaro. So right off the bat, I think it should be noted to anyone considering consuming this product that Amaro is Italian for bitter. However, these concoctions can be bittersweet. They could be even syrupy. Similar products are called other things in other parts of the world. For instance, Germany has a similar spirit that they call Krauter Likur. You can find a similar product sprinkled all over Europe. The Czech Republic has some, Slovakia, France, Hungary. And usually this type of drink is consumed as an after-dinner digestif, but it can sometimes be an aperitif, so you may consume it before dinner. Usually it's around 16 to 40% alcohol, according to my research, which puts it in the liqueur category. I would be curious to hear about your favorite Amaro or Amari, if you have more than one. Where did you get it? What did you like about it? And what is the ABV? It's such a vast group. Some of them are bitter. Some of them can be syrup. Some of them have sugar in them. Sometimes they don't. Flavorings also vary extensively as based on where it's made as well as the base spirit so I'm struggling to come up with the common thread so if you've got strong thoughts on that let's do a video chat and some day drinking I would actually love to hear what you have to teach me on this topic today we have Mark Viertaler who tries to clear it up for me uh, he's a fellow journalism graduate from Kansas, but he's retooled over the past 10 years to become a distiller. So he's worked his way from the beautiful plains of Kansas all the way east to 10th Ward Distilling in Fredericksburg, Maryland. He's here today to talk all about Amaro and Friends. I'm very happy to welcome Mark Viertaler from 10th Ward Distillery in Frederick, Maryland. He's recently a finalist in the Best of Frederick competition for a cocktail bar that just opened in July of this year. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Good to be here. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some, of, some of your products. You're going to be paired up with our uh, show on Amaro. So I wanted to talk with you about one of your products that I think is a seasonal product called Paw Paw Amaro. Can you tell us a little bit more about that product? Yeah, most definitely. Um, so uh, the Papa Amaro was something that um, we've been wanting to make for a little while. Um, it was a part of what we call our club release, um, kind of like a lot of other distilleries out there. We do have uh, what we call our bottle club and uh, kind of a way to help build up our uh, support uh, both locally and regionally and a way to kind of offer some more uh, value add to the people who are nearby or who you know take the time to travel and see us and so uh, within our bottle club uh, we release uh, four releases a year so they're quarterly releases and they are exclusive releases to the club members um, it's one thing that uh, we kind of again want to make it that kind of unique and uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, exclusive that if you are a club member, you are able to have access to maybe some things that are a little bit more experimental or things that are uh, things that we're especially proud of and we want to offer a award for the people who have taken the time to support us and have you know committed to being members of our club. And so uh, 
with the Papa Maro, it was kind of the Papa is uh, some people call it like America's native tropical fruit. Um, it also has things like uh, names like the hillbilly mango, and uh, it's just this really unique um, fruit that is actually indigenous to about 26 states within the United States. Um, if you look at the map of where the pawpaw grows, it goes all the way from, um, you know, pushing into New England, down through the mid-Atlantic, into the south, pushing through across the Midwest. Um, you know, e even in Kansas, where I'm originally from, pawpaws grew natively on the eastern edge. And so the pawpaw has kind of started to see a little bit of a renaissance um, especially as you've seen this growth of the foraging food movement. And we're also very lucky um, here in Frederick, there's actually a gentleman by the name of uh, Michael Judd, who lives in Frederick County and has worked to develop a pawpaw festival and uh, has really started to raise awareness of this incredibly unique and really delicious fruit and it is texture wise it's very custardy and sometimes it's called a custard apple um, but then flavor profile it is distinctly tropical it's it's like a banana and a mango and a pineapple all kind of got combined into this uh, unique almost uh, legume large legume looking fruit and uh, so kind of taking that and running with it and heading into the autumn and my personal affinity for Amaros or Amari, I should say. Uh, it was kind of here at 10th Ward, we call we, our motto is we're warding off ordinary. That's kind of what we always tell people is ward off ordinary. And so the idea of being able to take something that is native to the Chesapeake watershed, that is distinctly tropical and then marrying it with a, uh, traditional Italian idea of a bitter liqueur, just those contrasting flavors really appealed to us. And so we spent a couple of months developing the flavor profile, again, starting with that base level of we know we want to utilize uh, the pawpaws, we know we want to utilize and capitalize on those unique tropical flavors. And then we wanted to expand that more into further embracing the, the Chesapeake watershed and, and native fruits and plants. And so we started using things like uh, crab apples, um, which are native to the area, and hawthorn berries. And so we, we knew we had these very fruity, very summery textures. And then we dug into the history of other Amari and married those excuse me, married those traditional bittering agents with this tropical flavor to create something that is wholly unique. And it's just this wonderful, juicy and bitter on the back end with a little bit of red pepper spice in it, um, Amaro. So I actually have not ever had Amaro to my knowledge, um, unless it's been mixed into something. Uh, and so I had to do some research on what that was. So let's talk about what an Amaro is in the traditional sense. And then through my research, I actually found um, that there's kind of this emerging section, I guess, of American Amari. 
mm-hmm. um, which basically seems like it took the rule book for Amaro and chucked it and then <laughs> is kind of doing their own thing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the traditional and then what maybe even if you know about the American movement for like a new Amari. Uh, yeah, definitely. So uh, as you had kind of talked about, there is just this absolutely wonderful history um, involved with Amari. Uh, traditionally Italian, uh, tend to be bittersweet, ranging from extremely bitter uh, with just a little bit of sweet in it, things like fernets, all the way to um, aperitivos, which are going to be things like campari, uh, which are going to be bitter, but maybe a little bit more on the sweet side. Um, typically, like aperitivo are enjoyed at the beginning of a meal to stimulate the appetite, and then the heavier, more bitter uh, mari are meant for at the end of the meal um, to kind of encourage digestion. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these, yes, a digestif. So, uh, and I did find out kind of an interesting side note in terms of that. Um, there's a there's a local teaching farm here in Frederick called Foxhaven. And they help us teach uh, some foraging classes to do like, you know, wild cocktails and wild spirits. Uh, but they also grow some of our botanicals for our, our absinthe and our, and our amari that we produce and some of our liqueurs. And uh, we were actually out at a class a while back and uh, Lacey, who's kind of heads up that uh, the botanical section and the garden section, was talking about how the whole purpose of it is you know, bitterness to humans is a sign of poison. Like we are evolutionary, evolutionary programmed to avoid bitterness, but we're also drawn to it. And so what happens is that bitter sensation basically sends a message to your body that, okay, you've imbibed something that's potentially poisonous. We have to speed up digestion so we can get it out of the system faster. So there is actually some basis for utilizing these bitter liqueurs to aid in the digestion process but but yeah so there's just this absolutely wonderful you know centuries upon centuries of history in traditional amari production and so i always say that you know they're people much more intelligent than myself are the ones who figured this out so kind of what we're able to do is capitalize on their knowledge and expand it and uh, it's, I feel like it fits really well in with the American tradition and perhaps maybe American stereotype of taking traditions and then completely disregarding them. <laughs> and, and so I think that's kind of what you're seeing now with this modern movement is, especially as we've gotten into the cocktail renaissance and, uh, it, it's no longer just concentrated on the coasts or places like Chicago and you're seeing this this love of traditional cocktails and craft cocktails filtering down across the entire country and into maybe some more rural locations, you're seeing the distillery industry pick up on those, uh, those cues as well and start to identify that there is this demand for local amari, local bitters, local liqueurs, and so what you're seeing, at least in my opinion, in terms of the American style is kind of like what we've done is we've taken those traditions, we've taken that knowledge, and then we skew it, we twist it, we find a way to make it distinctly local and make it distinctly unique for that particular region or that particular distillery. 
And that is uh, something I, I think that I've seen in the descriptions that I've read about Amari um, is that it was very local um, and they had them all over Europe. So Germany has one called that they call a kraut liqueur um, in Hungary, Netherlands, France. Um, but Amaro is typically applied only to Italian products. Um, so is there like a flavor profile, I guess, like specific herbs and stuff that go in it, like juniper is related to gin. Is there something that goes into Amaro that it just wouldn't be the same or is commonly found in Amaro? Um, you know, not, there's not really like a set, okay, like, yeah, with gin, you have to have juniper, with absinthe, you have to have grand wormwood. Uh, it is very um, ephemeral in terms of like a specific dictation of what's in it. You will, I mean, there's common uh, bittering agents that you will find. Um, it's very common to see gentian um, in Amari. It is very common to see things like galangal root, um, angelica root, orris root. Uh, so you will see some overlap even with like traditional gin products. Um, but a lot of it was based on, you know, what you had access to. Um, what is something that is you have easy access to, that you have easy access to high quality. Um, you know, you talk about like, yeah, various regions have their different bitter liqueurs. Uh, Genepi is a good example. Um, Genepi tends to utilize alpine herbs um, and has a very distinctive, very piney aroma to it. Um, you see when you're obviously with Amari and you're in Italy, you're seeing a lot of like bitter orange peel. Um, you're going to see a little bit more citrus. Um, so really kind of the goal, I think the, the overarching definition would be it is utilizing bittering agents, utilizing local products, and then trying to develop essentially kind of a sense of terroir in terms of the, the botanical usage of the bitter and even the sweet and the fruit. All right, so it sounds like it can be really regional and it sounds like you have made a wonderful product that I actually have lived at the edge of that pawpaw margin with the 26 states um, in Northern Florida. I've never seen one in person. <laughs> um, so they are an extremely fragile fruit. So how did you source enough of these fruits to make any amount of product? Because they typically can only be off the tree for maybe two to three days with refrigeration before they go um, bad. So yeah. <laughs> where where did you find your pawpaws? <laughs> because they're kind of <laughs> mythical and elusive, right? So it's yeah. America's, it's native, but they're difficult to find and they're difficult to handle. So how did you handle that? Um, you know, I am, a, I am a firm believer in finding people who are experts in areas that I am not and then relying on their knowledge quite heavily. Um, we were very lucky to, again, so we have uh, uh, Michael Judd here in Frederick, who was a good source in terms of, you know, handling and usage and, and identifying um, high quality pawpaws. And then we were also lucky enough, there is a um, farm in Ohio that is called Integration Acres, and they specialize in pawpaws. And 
they they tend to focus on making pawpaws available to the general public, and so they've actually kind of perfected a way of getting a consistent puree, um, processing it, and then freezing that puree, and then they will like do an overnight shipment to you. And so, thankfully, we were able to uh, uh, work with them to get um, bulk pricing and kind of walk th- with them. They kind of walked us through the different cultivars of the pawpaws that they utilize, um, the seasons that they were harvested, um, you know, ideal storage temperatures, things like that. But, um, yeah, we basically called Integration Acres and said, okay, we need, you know, X hundred pounds of pawpaw puree. And we had to time it perfectly so that basically as soon as the pawpaw showed up, we knew we had to use them. Um, there really wasn't going to be much time to kind of sit on it and wait for the, for the proper time. So uh, the, the production was over about a three to four week period uh, where we started the infusion of some of the bitter agents and some of the, the local fruits like the crab apples went into the spirits. And basically the pawpaws went in. Uh, we got the pawpaws, we dumped them straight into the spirit, let them infuse for another five days, and then all of that went straight into the still and got distilled out. Um, you know, the advantage of the high-proof spirit being able to kind of work as a um, as a preservative, because it is, uh, pawpaws are, are very, very, they're very touchy. They're <laughs> very, they, you have, yeah, about three to four days. Um, and in terms of like harvest, you have about two to three weeks. And if you harvest too early, they're not going to be ripe and they're not going to really taste like anything. And they're going to be, have this unpleasant astringency. And if you wait too long, they become mush and then that astringency comes back. And, and again, kind of, I think that was also part of the reason we were attracted to doing something with pawpaws is I think I tend to enjoy things that are overly difficult. Nice. (laughs) Uh, Especially in spirit production, like let's find a way to just... And then to be able to do it well, I think that's kind of a, it's maybe an ego flex to be like, oh yeah, no, this is totally a, this is a pain to do, but we did it and it was delicious. And so, yeah, so, um, and that's something I'll always recommend is, you know, I will, I will go in and I will do as much research as I possibly can, but there are people who have, you know, decades more experience of me in something I am, I am going to lean on their knowledge and I am never embarrassed to say, I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) And so, that's so yeah, a good, so, that's a good quality, yeah, to have. Because we had even, and we, because we had thought about, you know, let's let's do our own harvest, let's let's you know take the time to process it. But you know, we're still we're still a small distillery. Um, there's five of us full time, and I'm the only one that's full time in production. And so, with things like that, that kind of falls to me and. Kind of had to look at it and go, am I going to have the time to, to go out to a pawpaw orchard and maybe spend a couple of days getting a couple hundred pounds of pawpaw pulp and processing it myself, so. Yeah, so you got some, you found a place that could do kind of the heavy lifting of the growing, harvesting, um, even getting the seeds out and taking it off the rind, pulping it, freezing it, shipping it. And so basically you were the doctor waiting for the heart transplant to arrive and immediately (laughs) dumped those things, (laughs) immediately got them into, into the spirit, um, and got the process started. So that, that's really interesting. And it does cut out a lot of the work. A lot of times when I hear these products 
like yours that are using something that is extremely perishable or that is labor intensive to um, harvest. Like I remember one time we had peaches growing. We had a huge peach year here in Colorado and we had a peach tree in our yard. Our cousin that also lives in town had a peach tree and it was like this massive tree breaking harvest of peaches and so it was kind of like all hands on deck and we had bushels of peaches and then I remember we set up kind of like in my kitchen this line right so somebody was steaming them and taking the peels off another person was pitting them another person was you know cutting off any unsightly bits another person you know and it was just the amount of work and how sticky and so I'm sure you were happy to let someone else <laughs> take care of that. <laughs> oh yeah, and 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 we did, um, you know, we we did a little bit of kind of hand processing ourselves um, when we were doing test batches. Um, that's you know that's one thing that obviously before like we did a before we did a 150 gallon batch to produce bottles to go out to club members. I did about a half a dozen small batches on our little test still. And so, so that, again, kind of gave the opportunity to explore and learn more about the pawpaws, actually interact with a pawpaw off of the tree and processing it. But, um, and you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's also finding that balance between, uh, between being artisanal and making something that makes financial sense <laughs> as a business. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, you always have to weigh those two. And so just from a sheer time standpoint, it became uh, became much easier to just be like, okay, we're going to utilize somebody that we know knows how to do this and, you know, reduce some of that chance of, uh, of mistakes on our side. And, you know, for the crab apples, we still went out and harvested those by hand. Um, the good news with that was... I was anticipating I was going to need about 10 to 15 pounds of it. Um, and we're talking like original, like native Maryland crab apples, which are, you know, yay big. I mean, about maybe an eighth of an inch. So they're very small. And so I was kind of dreading going out to this orchard. I mean, they were going to let us have them for free. It's a local orchard that, uh, nursery that grows lots of trees. And during the test uh, experimentation, I discovered I really only needed about a pound for a full batch because that level of astringency and uh, that, you know, like very tart apple acetylaldehyde came through very quickly. So so that was still an adventure, though, to go out and bit by bit, just kind of, okay, yeah, that one looks good. That one looks good. <laughs> one crab apple, two uh, crab apples. Okay, exactly. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so much of Amaro uh, seems to be balance and, you know, several of the brands that I looked up and read about um, seem to mention finding the balance between sweet and bitter. Um, how do you approach that? Um, so one thing I always have to, uh, I always have to remind myself and um, our founder and CEO and owner, uh, Monica Pierce here at 10th Ward, is she's very good at reminding me of my own, my own uh, biases. I love bitter. Um, I will fully admit that my, my taste skews bitter heavy. Um, I, I really enjoy Fernet's, um, things like Fernet Branca or uh, Francisco Fernet out of San Francisco. 
um, the, the previous distillery I was at, I made a, a, an Amaro that was closer to a Fernet. And so I will admit that's like where I skew and the general public um, tends to not. Um, obviously the more bitter we always go towards sweet exactly exactly um i, I can't even can't even remember who it was but a, a a former teacher of mine once told me never ask a uh, never ask a tasting panel if your spirit should be more sweet because they will always say yes <laughs> um so so kind of what I've learned to do is um, when we're doing these one-offs, and uh, this is a one-off, and we made reassess that because it has been so popular and we've had consistent requests that we, we sold out incredibly quick and we signed up a bunch of new club members because they explicitly heard, oh, this is really good, sign up to be a club member so you can get this. <laughs> but I, I like I said, I, I put together a handful of batches and then I was able to identify three separate recipes that I liked. Um, and that's kind of a standard process for me anyway, if we're introducing a new product, whether it's a one-off, whether it's going, we're planning on it and going to the full line. I'm gonna do a couple experiments, dial in the flavors where I want it, and they usually have three to four that I will then take to Monica and our sales staff and our bartending staff and go, okay, taste these. Um, I never tell them which one is my favorite. I just will usually drop the bottles off and be like, okay, when you come in for your next shift, get in a little bit early, take the time to try these, shoot me some notes, you know, let me know what you think. And, um, and that helps me get uh, some better insight into kind of maybe what the general public is going to like. Um, my wife is key in that as well. Um, she has an absolutely amazing palate and she's never been afraid to tell me when something is garbage. And <laughs> so basically being able to utilize our staff and um, ownership and you know, we have some regulars that come into the tasting room in the cocktail lab that will occasionally bring them in and on it as well um, that we know we're gonna be able to anticipate honest feedback. And uh, so it's really, you know, kind of mini market research and just taking the time to sit and think about it. Um, that's one thing that it, it is very easy to get into a hurry. Um, I know I'm guilty of that. I always say when I got into distilling, it taught me patience because I am not naturally a patient guy. I'm very impatient. Um, I'm very this has to happen now, we have to do this. And especially with things that are as complex and difficult to, I feel, make well, like Amari, you have to take that time and you have to really think about it and parse out, have we gone too heavy on bitter? Have we gone too heavy on sweet? Is this too saccharine? Is this too, or maybe we need to ramp the bitterness way, way up. Maybe we've, maybe we've dialed it too soft and, and going in with the knowledge of where you want it to be on the scale um, is important as well. Um, again, one of the nice things, especially being here in Frederick, because you know we're 30 miles from DC, we're 30 miles from Baltimore, we've and we've got uh, an exploding craft scene here as well. It's easy for me to get access to a wide ranging spectrum of products and. 
I think doing that as well, like, okay, probably the most accessible is think of like Campari versus Aperol. Um, Campari tends to skew a little bit more bitter. It's still very sweet, but bitterness is going to be dominant. Aperol is going to be a little bit more accessible. Um, it's a little bit more citrus. It's a little bit sweet. It doesn't have that same bite that Campari does. And so that's kind of how we went in with the Papa Amaro was we want somewhere in between uh, a Campari and an Aperol. We still want it to be distinctly a liqueur. We don't want it to be as sweet as Aperol, but we still want it to be not heavy, heavy on the bitterness. And and so then you just start playing around. Um, you know, you, you take your, you identify the flavor profiles you want so you can bring those those roots and those botanicals and those fruits in. And it's it's a game of millimeters. You just tweak and tweak until you go somewhere and you go, yeah, this is what I like. <clears throat> um, like with the Papa Maro, like I said, there were three that I took to everybody to taste. And the one that ended up winning out was the one that was the sweetest of the three, but it still had a really hefty bitterness to it. Um, my favorite one, which I held on to that bottle and keep it in my desk for a, is heavy, heavy bitter. And so, um, and those are things also, you know, knowing your, um, knowing your customer base, um, knowing do people come to your brand expecting something that is going to be on the sweeter end? Maybe you're known for liqueurs and cordials, or can you get away with being a little bit more adventurous and being a little bit more, um, uh, aggressive with your with your flavor profiles. Um, we're lucky that since the founding of 10th Ward, again, Ward Off Ordinary, our goal has been kind of bonkers off the wall stuff. And so we are, I think, get a little more leeway from our from our supporters to try crazy stuff. Well, tell me a little bit about how this bottle club works. Are you shipping out um, stuff to people? Do they come and pick it up at the distillery? Is it a local thing? Well, so unfortunately we can't legally, um, ship spirits, um, from our distillery. So it is a, you have to come in and pick it up, but yeah. So essentially, um, it's people sign up. It's completely free to join. Um, we do four bottle clubs releases a year, one per quarter. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, they are bottles that, are exclusively produced for our club members. Um, for me, as a distiller, it's fun because that lets me kind of do weird stuff. Um, that essentially lets me go to Monica and go, hey, I really want to do this. Can I do it as a club release? And I, she has yet to tell me no. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, so again, so it creates, um, there's kind of the expectation that they have the option to opt out. They're not required to buy all four. Um, there's kind of the expectation that they will purchase at least two of them. Um, and then, yeah, then basically they their card will get charged and we hang on to that bottle for them. And then they will come in and pick it up. It's been really cool. Like we've got, we've got people, obviously a whole bunch of people that are local. Um, we also have one club member that comes from as far away as New York. Um, and he will drive, he and his wife will drive down once a quarter to one, pick up the quarterly club release and then also to restock their bar back in New York because he just absolutely adores our stuff and he, he adores the other distilleries here in Frederick as well. And so he'll come and pick up stuff from them. And, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of cool to have 
uh, have that expansion that, yeah, obviously a lot of local, but we have people that come from the surrounding states and from the mid-Atlantic. So, And then we do special events for them as well, uh, kind of ways to help them buy in. Um, for example, coming up in November, I had mentioned Foxhaven, that, that farm that we work with. Um, they're actually... Uh, do, we're doing a forest cocktail class in November where uh, the first, I think we limited it to 25, first 25 club members who sign up. We're going to take them out to the farm. They're going to get a foraging class. We're going to go back to the barn and I'm going to teach them how to make cocktails with the ingredients that they foraged out on the farm. So yeah, it's just kind of ways again to to build loyalty for the distillery, to show appreciation to people for their support of us. And also for us to kind of, again, be creative and find ways that um, we can kind of stretch our wings a little bit without running the, the risk of introducing it into the broader market and a product that may not, that, you know, a handful of people may adore, but may not be something that would find, you know, wide ranging acceptance or success. That is definitely sounds like a really cool program, and I want to go to the foraging class in November, um, but it seems like it might be a drive from Colorado. Saturday, November 16th, um, if you decide you want to come out. And yeah, it is a bit of a haul. I, I, I don't know where you're at in Colorado, but uh, Dodge City, which is my home. Okay, yeah, so... <laughs> So Dodge City, where where I'm from, is a it's a 21 hour drive from Dodge. So. <laughs> Better be a good cocktail. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like you have a really good gig there. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the other things that you've done. Um, I see you've got a background in journalism. So do yes. I. Uh, You've been a cocktail apprentice at Tales of the Cocktail. You've done bartending, mixology. Um, uh, you've been a marketing director. Tell us about some of the places that have given you, I guess, the tools that you're using now um, to promote Tenth Ward. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like a lot, my story is similar to a lot of people in the craft spirit space where we came to it from a very roundabout way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I got my, my Bachelor of Science in Journalism from the University of Kansas, so Rock Chalk Jayhawk, um, and lived and worked in the Kansas City area and uh, was an investigative reporter for several years, um, had the opportunity to go back to my hometown of Dodge City, Kansas to take over the daily newspaper there. Um, so my wife and I moved back to Dodge and... I did that for about a year, but unfortunately that was uh, early to mid 2000s. And that was when, you know, kind of the journalism industry saw its crash and died. Yeah, yeah. pretty much, um, you know, didn't know yeah. how to handle, didn't know how to handle internet news and, you know, the ownership and ownership groups didn't really want to pay investigative reporters anymore. I mean, you know, you, you were expensive and you tended to make advertisers angry. So I uh, did what a lot of journalists did and left journalism and got into public relations and marketing. Uh, and there in Dodge City was a, a national agricultural company. And I went had zero experience in agriculture, but thankfully happened to know the CEO through a local uh, not-for-profit that his wife volunteered for and my wife and I volunteered for. And so got that job and, and did the public relations and marketing uh, for them for about seven and a half years. And... When I did that, I, I wanted to stay kind of somehow within the journalism space and 
my wife and I are huge foodies. Um, she's an absolutely amazing chef and I've always had the soft spot for cocktails and craft cocktails. And so I started a blog uh, that was called Cocktails 365. And basically for three years in a row, I made a new cocktail every single day and wrote about it and ended up kind of taking off. And so I ended up doing a bunch of freelance uh, cocktail and spirit writing. And um, my wife and I worked on developing a craft cocktail program for a local live theater and spent about eight years really trying to help develop a taste for craft cocktails and kind of an elevated drinking experience within rural Kansas. And as we got like about seven and a half, eight years in, there were three farmers in Dodge that decided that they wanted to open a distillery. And um, they happened to know me through my ag and my cocktail writing work. And so they reached out originally and were just like, hey, you know, do you just want to come on occasionally as like a consultant and come in and taste spirits and go, yeah, this is good. No, this isn't. I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And then I noticed one day they had posted a a listing for a part-time assistant distiller and a um, part-time marketing and events planner. And so I actually called the owner that I knew and was like, hey, do you have some time to do all of these things? Yeah. And I was like, can I, can I come in and talk to you? And he said, yeah. And so I was like, Hey, how about you bring me on as a distiller and as your director of communications uh, full time? And he was like, okay, when can you start? (laughs) And so I I walked away from a, from a lucrative, but, but not ultimately fulfilling um, job in public relations and decided to learn how to become a distiller. And, uh, kind of never really looked back, just absolutely fell in love with the industry and, and fell in love with the distilling side. I mean, I always, I think I went in kind of with the idea that marketing and PR would still be my main gig. And then I would just occasionally help with distilling and, and help with cocktails where I could. And I just, as soon as I got in and started meeting other distillers and going to other distilleries and, and got my hands into it, I just absolutely fell in love with it. And, kind of that's where I decided I wanted to skew it and so yeah so like every single one of those so like this roundabout way from from journalism to marketing to bartending to distilling and I still utilize every single one of those you know each one of those has built on each other and I I think that gives gives me a unique advantage in um, I'm one of the few distillers I know that has cocktail experience and also has the public relations and marketing experience. And so, um, so yeah, no, we, the, the former head distiller here at 10th Ward is actually a good friend of mine. And he got a gig in Ireland at a distillery and called me. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. And I was like, yeah, no, I totally get, but he called me one day and he was like, you hey. should take that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was like, Hey, I don't know. I don't know if you're anticipating or even wanting to leave where you're at. He is, but I think, he said, I think you'd love what 10th Ward is doing. I think you'd love, you know, what Monica's doing and the passion and the goals and, and kind of this, you know, more esoteric, uh, off the beaten path task or, or, or theory but behind the distillery. And so uh, my wife and I's son was in college and we're like, well, yeah, let's let's see what we think of it. And so I interviewed with Monica and and just absolutely fell in love with what 10th Ward was doing and fell in love with Frederick and the whole DMV mid-Atlantic region. And so we packed up and moved and, and still utilize all of those skills today. Uh, do occasional blog posts for 10th Ward and 
um, have worked hand in hand with with Monica and our our cocktail lab staff to develop the cocktail program here at Tenth Ward, and we've been lucky that um, well, I don't know Lux got so much to do with it. Monica is very very good at finding high quality people. And I say that entirely realizing that makes me sound incredibly egotistical. <laughs> but we, you're like, hey, just look at me. I yeah, mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm proof positive of um but no, she's she's very, very good at hiring. And she has been able to put together an absolutely outstanding staff and so as we got ready um to launch our, our cocktail program in July I was very hands-on with that, helping with the cocktail development, helping with the menu development, training, all of that. Um, a good problem to have, we've, we've been so successful that our production has ramped up here at 10th Ward, so increasingly I've had to step away from the cocktail side, but uh, about once a month I still try to get over there and get behind the bar and, and work a shift, and we've even talked about doing uh, the occasional promoting it hey come in and the head distiller will make you a couple of cocktails tonight <laughs> you should you should promote that especially for club members if you had like a club member night or something like that that might be a cool event yeah we've talked about doing kind of like a, a cocktail class with the head distiller and but like i say it's it's it makes me feel good that i'm able to increasingly step away from it um I still have that passion for the cocktail side. I mean, I'm still, one hands down, one of the best experiences of my life, personally and professionally, was being a cocktail apprentice at Tales of the Cocktail. Um, and I've kind of always wanted to go back and do it again, but as my my profession, my professional life and my like day-to-day -day has increasingly moved towards distillation, um, I felt like I don't really want to assuming they accepted me back i wouldn't want to take that spot from somebody whose career is cocktails and because it is just an absolutely amazing experience but but that knowledge i gained there has been able to be extrapolated to the distilling side and also obviously the development of the cocktail programs as well speaking of cocktail programs let's talk about that humble brag of award-winning cocktail programs um Tell me about which awards that you guys have won with that cocktail program. Well, like you say, um, um, right now we're, we were incredibly honored. Um, there, there's two kind of best of Frederick awards that, that go on here within uh, Frederick County, Maryland. One is by Frederick Magazine and the other is by the uh, Frederick News Post, which is the, the local daily newspaper. And... Um, we, we were heading into this fall and the, the cocktail lab had just been open, I think about two months, if even that. And we got nominated as best cocktail program in Frederick. Um, so there's like three, essentially I think there were three rounds of voting and it's a, it's a public vote. So, you know, they kind of put it out to the general public and, we uh, obviously were like, okay, cool, yeah, like there's a handful of people that, that liked our cocktails enough that they put us on there. And then there was about two weeks of daily voting. You know, you could go back and you could vote. And then that narrowed it down from a list of about 15 to 20 bars to five. And then the top five, there was another round of voting. And Frederick in the last 10 years has just absolutely exploded in terms of craft, specifically high quality food, high quality 
beverages. Um, like I mentioned, you know, there's there's four distilleries just within the city of Frederick, and we got two more coming in in the next 12 months. So there's going to be six just in the city limits um, of a town of 80,000 people. <laughs> so um, there's also almost a dozen breweries, um, eight wineries, two cideries, and a meadery. I mean, so like Frederick has become this hub within Maryland of craft beverage, and as such, you've seen this really impressive growth of mixology as well. And there are some absolutely brilliant bartenders and bar managers and mixologists here within Frederick. And so when, when they released the top five, we were absolutely humbled and appreciative that we were in the top five alongside these long established programs that I would put head to head with any bar in New York or LA. And so, um, unfortunately we did not win, but, um, just in the top five, we, we hold that up that, that we're at least doing something right. <laughs> if, and that's kind of the goal going in has been that, uh, you know, we, it's based around education. You know, we, we, we want to be able to utilize the program to educate people about our spirits. Um, you know, obviously, again, at the end of the day, we are a distillery. We are interested in selling our product, but um, that was kind of the idea going in was education, showing people how they can mix with it, but then still giving them an elevated experience. Um, I, I just gave a, a, an ACSA webinar on developing a craft cocktail program for your distillery's tasting room. and. And the, the drum beat that I kept coming back to during that was safety and education. And I always tell people, I said, if you come into the cocktail lab, which is what we, we call our cocktail lounge, you will not get a shot. That is, that is not our goal. Um, not what we do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that to us and to me, like every cocktail program I've ever done, even before I was a distiller and I was just working within bars and cocktail programs. I can't stop you from saying we're going to do shots, but I feel like that's anathema to our idea of safety and of encouraging a responsible drinking culture. Um, because at the end of the day, what we, we are making a drug, you know, we are, it's a legal drug. It's one that I feel if enjoyed responsibly is absolutely amazing and is and is such an amazing part of community and history and culture but i feel like that call that call to action has to come from us as distilleries you know to discourage um improper drinking and to discourage irresponsible drinking and so so we still wanted so we wanted to be able to kind of come from that an education about our spirits about responsible drinking and then give people those tools and that opportunity to come in and also just have an amazing experience and to come and sit down and enjoy a cocktail with us. And, you know, you're not coming, we're not the place you're going to come to if you want to get absolutely gooned on a Saturday night. That's not our goal. Tell me about some of your other um, seasonal things for your bottle club that you've done. What are some interesting distilling experiments that have made the cut? Uh, yeah, so um, basically, like we've we've kind of this this year has been introducing our club members to products that maybe um, we've done for other people or 
um, have developed eventually for the for the larger audience. Um, our first quarter release, we actually next to our production facility here in Frederick is a seafood restaurant, and we do a custom rum for them. Um, it's the only rum we make. We don't make rum for anybody else. We don't sell it. And it's a traditional Caribbean style, you know, 100% molasses, pot distilled, no sweeteners, you know, lots of funk, lots of phenol. It's just this absolutely kind of wonderful rum, but it only goes to that restaurant. And so in the first quarter, we released it to our club members. And we were like, hey, we want to give you the opportunity to try this. Excuse me. Um, and then the second quarter release was our bourbon, um, which will eventually see a larger release. But that was kind of, we've had people asking, you know, since we opened three years ago, when's the bourbon coming out? And so we wanted to give them first crack to that. Um, then uh, the third or third quarter release, we did a what we called our Maryland series of absinthe. Um, so one of our main product lines is our Absinthe Nouvelle, uh, which is kind of a modern twist on a classic French style absinthe, a green absinthe. And um, again, my love of local and my love of things that are kind of a little bit different, we decided to do a tricolor series um, based off the colors of the Maryland flag. So it was a series that had a white absinthe, a yellow absinthe, and a red absinthe. And all three of those were also focused around utilizing local Maryland ingredients uh, to give them their own unique flavor profiles, um, including one of them utilizing some of the ingredients that are found in Old Bay seasoning, <laughs> which actually ended up being, nice. yeah, so it's very savory, very spicy. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then our fourth quarter release was the Paw Paw Maro that just came out. And uh, that came out uh, beginning of October. And then heading into the next year, um, we're looking at um, one of our main lines right now is a, um, our, our caraway rye, which is very similar to an aquavit. Uh, we've got our hands on some wine barrels and we've tossed that into, it's aging in bourbon barrels right now. And then we're gonna pull it from the bourbon barrels and finish it in wine barrels. Um, so that's gonna come out uh, January of this next year. And then we've got some other cool stuff going down the line, like a barrel-aged rum, uh, doing a Queen's Share rum, um, probably doing some more liqueurs. And um, what's been nice is as we've expanded, as we've grown, that also gives us an opportunity to be much more like thoughtful and purposeful as we move forward with it. So yeah, Monica and I just sat down about a month or two ago and planned out the next two years worth of club releases. So... You're kind of locked in then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, that's the plan. Is I, I told her as long as she's willing to keep me around, we're probably going to be here. So. <laughs> so if you're planning two years in advance um, for these club releases, is that why why so long? Like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of place in there for you to have artistic thoughts about what would be really good. Do you know what I mean? If it takes two years from idea to implementation, you know, and release of this bottle club, um, you know, why, why so long? Why? Um, so I would argue, I would argue that for kind of the exact opposite, that that gives me extra time, you know, for creation, um, to, to build in that extra time to be able to, 
think about it and to develop that process of how do we want this to work and how do we want to ensure that what we're putting into a bottle is the exact idea that we may have had. Um, and a lot of it is also because we want to start releasing more aged product. Um, so planning two years out, that means that I need to be thinking first quarter of next year, how I'm going to produce that so that can get into a barrel so it's going to be ready to go in two years. Um, we also do a lot of one-offs. Uh, the as I keep coming back to you know the craft space, I mean one of the reasons I fell in love with craft distilling is because <clears throat> in every other business that I've worked in, it's very cutthroat, and it's not like that in craft distilling and craft beer specifically. It is very welcoming, very oh you have a question, cool. I have this knowledge. I'm going to share that with you, and so. Here in Frederick, if there is a brewery that they've got some stuff that's ready to kick off, like some kegs that are about to go bad that they didn't it didn't sell as quickly as they thought, or they've done an experiment that they weren't happy about, we will take that fermentation off of their hands and we'll distill it out. We'll do something with it and we'll put out 200 bottles. And it'll be like, okay, you have these 200 bottles. It's a first come, first serve, and it'll never happen again. We call, that our we call it our conspirator series. So those still give me that opportunity to do something very off the cuff, very improvisational. It was like, okay, cool, we have this. Um, what can we do with that? Um, another good example of that is there is a brewery here in town that did a, a blood orange cider that they just decided that for whatever reason, what had happened during fermentation with the blood orange, they didn't like how it worked out. And so they had a couple hundred gallons of it. And I was like, yes, 100%, I will take that. And so I distilled that off into a blood orange cider or a blood orange uh, eau de vie. And then that's gonna get infused uh, with some local botanicals, go into a barrel, and then that's gonna come out in January as well. And that's probably only gonna be like 120 bottles. And so, that's again kind of kind of going back to the club member another advantage they get is they get a week's heads up um so like we, with those limited one-offs we don't promote it it's a we basically get onto facebook get onto social media get onto our website and go hey surprise this weekend we have uh we have this new release coming out and it's first come first serve but our club members get a heads up a week ahead of time and basically go hey and we don't do holds with those either like um with kind of some of our limited releases club members are allowed to put holds on bottles but with those like super small batches it's like you have to come in but you get a whole week before the general public knows right so, so you yeah. can line up yes exactly and we and we've been lucky like they they have we did a there was a another local brewer here that's name is old mother and they had a a crystal malt fermentation that they weren't super happy with, so we bought it off their hands and distilled it, tossed it into a barrel, and then infused it with fresh orange peel, cloves, and figs, and then bottled it. And it tastes like an old-fashioned in a bottle. I mean, it is. And it sold out in two hours, I think. <laughs> Which was... And then we did, like, a co-branding with them. So, like, we then gave them that barrel that it had aged in. They aged one of their Imperial Stouts in it. And so on the same day, people could go to their brewery 
and get a bottle of the Imperial Stout that came from that whiskey barrel, and then they could come to our place and pick up that bottle of whiskey. You sound like you have a lot of really cool programs going on within your distillery. Um, and it, you said previously you had been open or the distillery had been open about three years, right? Correct. But you just got a cocktail tasting room last summer in 2019. Yep. Yeah, that so was because of Maryland laws changing. Right. So tell me about how it was and then how it is now, and if you had any kind of involvement in getting those laws changed, what did you do? Uh, yeah, so um, as I had mentioned, so yeah, so we just celebrated this past July was our third our third birthday, um, and so thankfully Maryland does allow tasting rooms, um, but people were limited to two ounces per visit. Um, which essentially meant that you could come in and you could offer samplings, you can offer tasting flights of your spirit. Uh, we were required though, if you were to do that, we also had to offer tours. Um, that was kind of an interesting that if you wanted to serve samples, you also had to offer tours of your production facility or at least of your facility. And you know, there was a lot of gray area in that um, because it did just say per visit. So technically if a person wanted to quote unquote drink come back in <laughs> exactly that's technically a separate visit um so but yeah so they were limited to two ounces um typically what we did is we would have a a, a four spirit flight um you know the tasting room has always been key to the business um i will always beat that drum and that's you know a whole other deep dive is you know to tasting room or not to tasting room but um so obviously, again, that focus of education and, and creating a, a destination where people could come in and and try your spirits one-on-one -on -one with you, have the opportunity to talk to the owner, have the opportunity to talk to the staff, and then purchase a bottle in-house as well. And we still do that. You know, it's still, you can still come in and do a flight, talk one-on-one, -on -one, and pick up a bottle. Um, but again, most, most people don't drink their spirits neat. Um, most people, their spirits are, their knowledge are within the context of a cocktail. And so, um, we're very lucky here in Maryland. We have hands down the most active distillers guild I have ever seen. Um, there's 30 members and we meet every month and there's usually at least a dozen representatives at each meeting. And so... We also have a, uh, there's a group whose name is called Grow and Fortify, and they are a not-for-profit that works with the Distillers Guild, uh, the Brewers Guild, and the Winemakers Association here in Maryland. And they lobby on our behalf, essentially basically representing the craft beverage industry as a whole. And so this process to change the law to allow cocktails has been going on for years. Um, there have been a couple of false starts, um, obviously a lot of lobbying. Um, it looked like it was gonna happen back in 2018 and then it ended up kind of falling through. And then uh, I came on here at 10th Ward in October of 2018 and kind of right after the new year, worked closely with Monica and the Guild and Grow and Fortify with those lobbying efforts. So um, I went down to Annapolis, was able to sit on some of the committees, um, was able to be a, uh, a witness and be able to testify on how this would benefit us. And there were definitely some hiccups. Um, 
Unfortunately, the co-sponsor of the bill was found out to have dropped some Rachel epithets at a private club in Annapolis. And so for a while, it looked like all of the bills that she was sponsoring were pretty much going to be DOA. Um, thankfully, there were some, it was a bipartisan supported bill. And so some of the other co-sponsors were willing to step up and make sure that got through. And then it looked for a while, it almost wasn't going to pass because of a couple of small uh, issues people had, you know, quote unquote, encouraging drinking and drunk drunkenness. And, and thankfully, again, uh, Kevin Addicts, who's in charge of Grow and Fortify, really just absolutely hit the pavement and talked to these uh, representatives and the law passed. And so it went into effect uh, 1st of July, just in time for us to celebrate our third birthday. And now we are able to serve alcohol by the drink. Um, we're limited in how many gallons we can sell through that tasting room. It's a pretty large amount though. Um, it would be, I think we'd be making a killing. I can't remember off the top of my head how much that is specifically, but uh, it's it's a lot. I want to say it's like 7,000 gallons. <laughs> it's Something enough of a buffer that you're not going to have to worry about it for a minute. Exactly, exactly. Um, one of the ways, one of the concessions that did have to be made, though, was for the law to pass, 100% of the alcohol that goes into the cocktails has to be made by us. Um, the original form of the bill was 75%. So that meant like, obviously like the base spirit, but we would have been able to get vermouths and amaros and liqueurs and things that we didn't produce in house. But with the law change, it was 100% had to come from us. So that meant I had to learn how to make vermouth. <laughs> yeah. So we do make a house, house vermouth now. We don't sell it like it, we sell it to ourselves and we use it to mix in house, but it was cool. It was a fun challenge. That sounds like you're able to grow your skills. That's what I said. I was like, you know, initially I was kind of um, not aghast, but frightened that I was like, oh God, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this. But then I would kind of make me go, you know, this helped me identify where my knowledge gaps were. So I was like, you know, I know, I know vermouth. I know what are good vermouths, but I have zero idea how to make a vermouth. And so technically we can't even make a vermouth because we're not a winery. Uh, you know, U.S. law says you have to have a wine ma you have a wine license to make vermouth. So we make what we call our um, we call it an Amaro D vermouth, and essentially we we yeah we create it's a it's essentially a bitters it's an Amaro but it tastes like vermouth. We've just tried to recreate a vermouth that isn't wine based. Well, I think that about wraps up my questions. Um... Do you have anything that you want to share that you haven't talked about yet? Uh, you know, not really, other than I would just encourage anybody who's um, curious about Amari. Um, Brad Thomas Parsons has an absolutely outstanding book called Amaro. Um, I would recommend picking that up. He has, uh, Brad, number one, is a great guy in general. Um, he's got some good books out there, but it gives a good history. It gives tasting notes on I mean, almost countless styles of Amari that are out there. Um, lots of good history, lots of good flavor profiles. Um, if you're anybody out there is interested in pawpaws, um, again, I had mentioned, um, so Michael Judd, who I had mentioned here in Frederick, he actually has a book out that is called For the Love of Pawpaws. And I would definitely uh, recommend picking that up. It's a gorgeous book, lots of great photography, lots of great... Um, graphics it's not just Maryland focused he 
talks about papa harvest all over the U.S., ideal uh, ripening times, things like that. And then if you're a little more interested in history, there's a book that's called Papa in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit by Andrew Moore. Um, actually won a James Beard or was nominated for a James Beard when it came out. Um, another one, just super great history. And it's, it's just really fascinating to be able to dig into this fruit that a lot of people don't know about. Which I think is interesting because it is native, you know, to mm -hmm. America. And so you would think more people would know about it, but they don't. Um, which I, which is interesting. Yeah, it's and it's just so fascinating for us out of staters. Are we able to get your products shipped out? Um, do you have like a shipping service with like another business? So unfortunately, right now we are just available in Maryland and uh, Washington D.C. Um, I've heard I've heard rumors that one of the places that carries us in D.C. does ship, but. I tried to look that up the other day and I could not find anything on their website that implied that they could. So um, as of right now, we are we are distinctly mid-Atlantic regional. Uh, you'll have to come to us if you're if you're outside of the area. But, you know, we're we're looking at expanding more into the mid-Atlantic. Um, really, you know, one of the things that, that Monica and I are both big on is what we call, you know, thoughtful growth is you know we know the demands out there um we've had a couple other states approach us with interest in distribution but we really just want to make sure we can take care of take care of maryland first and dc and and just really make sure we're saturating this market and you know you don't you don't want to expand so fast that your quality suffers or that you have some sort of shortage right because you don't want to expand into territories where then those people can't even get your product because you're in so many territories that you have just one bottle on the shelf of every store um that's not yeah. a sustainable <laughs> or successful model either so own your no, backyard no, not at all, right so. <laughs> yes yes and we would encourage you know we would also encourage people to come visit us um you know, Frederick is this just absolutely gorgeous town. Um, the If you've never been to Maryland, I will fully admit, like I, before I got this job, I wasn't anti-Maryland, just Maryland was never even really on the radar of somewhere that, you know, we might want to end up, but it is a gorgeous state. Frederick is an amazing town. Again, there's this absolutely amazing renaissance going on right now with amazing food amazing drink um it's historic like there's a whole bunch of civil war and revolutionary war history around here um and there's lots of outdoor stuff plus 10th ward is here and so i encourage you, you if you want to try our stuff come visit us we would love to have you out and if you come out because you heard this tell the people at the cocktail lab that uh that you heard me and I will I will walk down to see you because our still house is not connected to our tasting room which is kind of breaks my heart because sometimes I miss out on cool people coming through but <laughs> so yes I see you're you must be in the still house now yes uh, because yes. typically typically the tasting rooms have a higher finish than what I'm looking yes. at on the ceiling <laughs> of the video that I'm looking right now I was going to say yeah than the drywall the on the ceiling here. <laughs> yes, our uh, we are very lucky. Um, our our production facility is just a little bit outside of downtown Frederick. Um, it's within walking distance of downtown. It's where our tasting room used to be. 
Um, and it was a tiny, tiny space, but we made it work. But um, last year, we moved in in November to our current tasting room and cocktail lab, which is this absolutely jaw-dropping space um, that's right smack dab in the middle of downtown Frederick. Um, great walking spot, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous storefront. So I would encourage people to come in and check out check out that space, too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, everybody. This is Mark Viertaler from 10th Ward Distillery in Frederick. I appreciate your time this morning. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to come on. And it's been a pleasure uh, getting to getting to talk to you. And I hope everyone enjoyed our talk today. And I encourage, yeah, if anybody has any like further questions for me, feel free to hit 10th Ward up on social or myself. I'm always happy to talk to people. A special thanks to Mark for joining me very early in the morning to help me crack this topic open. And since we recorded this, I actually have heard of a business model for bespoke herbal liqueurs. A restaurant creates their own blend of herbs and spices and bottles a limited amount of the product. It is actually a unique opportunity for the restaurateur to create cocktails that someone literally could not get anywhere else other than the restaurant, which for a high-end restaurant is exactly what they're in business to do. They're looking for new ways to provide experiences that are unique to their patrons. So these so-called nouveau botanical blends are a way to tailor a product to their food or even the mood of their restaurant. One article I saw actually mentioned that a restaurateur was embracing a product with a more temporary existence, if you will, meaning that he has a very limited number of bottles, say 300, made up, labeled, then he uses them to create custom cocktails that he provides in his restaurant, he uses it in recipes and dishes, and then he also sells them in local bottle shops. Then once all the bottles are gone, he rethinks the entire blend and makes a totally new product, which from a business standpoint would be a great contract distilling customer to have. But I'm curious to know what you guys think. Would the cola label application on a product like that be too much work? What are your thoughts? Are 300 bottles uh, too small of a run to redo all of that work again? What are your thoughts? Send me an email about it. I would love to get a feel for what you think about this. Well, that is all we have for you today. Thanks again to Mark for joining me to discuss all things Amaro, Amari, and I'll talk to you on the next one. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a giant thank you goes out to you for downloading and listening to this episode of our podcast. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, even if you like just a tiny bit of today's show. It really helps out with our show's vital statistics. If you want more information about this show, go to the show notes on our website, www.dalkita.com slash show notes, where we will have links to the people, places, and things mentioned today. There is even a real live transcript of the show to share with all your friends. And you can post a short comment for our team to obsess over, dissect, and even infer your tone and judge your grammar. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. The final shout out goes to the man that puts all of this together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. 
Until next time, seriously, guys, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore from Dalkita, and this has been the Distilling Craft Podcast. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft. Cheers. Cheers.